0: this morning we are beginning a new series as Robbie said and as we do as we start today I'd like us to envision something for a moment if you could just imagine this in your mind imagine that we uh, elected all the right people to all the right offices president Congress school board city council all the right people were sitting in the right chairs and they instituted all the right policies all the right legislation in fact, we got every proposition on every ballot exactly right. By the way, anybody here ever vote on a proposition and have no clue what it is you were voting for? Oh Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that we finally understood them and we got them all right. Everything. Zoning laws, tax structure, immigration, crime. Everything went exactly the way it was supposed to be. Now here's the question. Would that usher in a perfect society? Would the hearts of fathers be turned toward their children? Would every marriage in this country be a model of love and faithfulness? Would greed and pride and arrogance finally be legislated out of existence? Would your workplace be a model of harmony and delight, neighborhoods and schools, places of inclusivity and servanthood? And would human beings finally be able to master their impulses around things like anger and money and sexuality? To be personal for a moment, if we got all the people that we needed in the right offices to enact the right policies, would you finally have the life God intended for you to have? In other words, would you finally be the man or woman that God intended for you to be? I don't know what your answer is, but my answer is I have serious doubts that that would be the case. And it's not because we shouldn't engage in the political process because we should. We ought to vote. We ought to know the issues. We ought to be involved. You know, it's one thing to be involved, but we ought to do it with civility and uh, respectful and and be uh, looking for redemptive value as we are a part of the process. It's like the cartoon I saw not long ago, a guy standing at the pearly gates before St. Peter. And St. Peter said to him, yes, you were a Christian, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. (laughs) See, we want to be engaged. But here's the point. No human system has yet had the ability to change a human heart. And that includes a religious system as well. T.S. Eliot wrote this, and I think it is just very profoundly true. The problem with the human race is we want a system of order so perfect we do not have to be good. We want some kind of arrangement, either economically or politically or in a religious sense, some kind of order that is so perfect that we can just skip the part about being good. But there is no... System like that, friends. Some of you may be old enough to remember an actor by the name of Richard Burton. He was married to Elizabeth Taylor, in fact, I think a couple of times. And uh, he starred in a production of Camelot. And toward the end of the play, Burton, who was playing the character of King Arthur, he is singing this very poignant song. His dream of Camelot, you remember Camelot was this table, uh, had a round table where uh, nobody was above anyone else. And there was this amount of civility and goodness that flowed throughout the land. And Burton is singing this song and he's realizing that the next day that Camelot is going to be destroyed in battle. And he sings these words. He says, don't let it be forgot that there once was a spot for one brief shining moment, a kingdom that got it right. And it's so evocative. Because there is a longing for a kingdom, maybe not Camelot, maybe not Shangri-La, but one day a young man, a carpenter, a young rabbi, he comes into this world and no one had ever had a message like this young rabbi. It is summarized in Matthew and Mark's gospel almost identically, and this is what he says, the writer says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent and believe. Trust him. Give yourself to the good news, the gospel of God. He announces, Jesus does, a new administration. This thing called the kingdom of God. And it has become available now, he said, through me, through my life and my body and my teachings and my presence. He says, if you want to know what life looks like, he says, look at my life. Come and follow me. No longer is it uh, necessary to be part of a nation or a certain ethnic group. He says, now everybody can be a part of this kingdom. And there's this one brief shining moment, a little community is formed. And then its leader is crucified. And they thought that that one brief shining moment was over, but they were wrong. As we celebrated this past week, On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And it turns out that your sin and my sin, that death and guilt, that that was actually what was defeated on the cross, not Jesus. And now he says there is a society of a transformed life. This is so interesting that for 2,000 years now, Governments and civilizations and political movements and economic systems have come and gone. They have risen and they have fallen. And Jesus still remains the single bright light of the human race. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus' plan was not to start a church full of people who call themselves Christians but remain cranky, egotistical, judgmental, deceptive, greedy, lusty, gossipy, self-righteous, religious people until they die and finally get to go to heaven. His dream, his desire, his plan was to begin a society of the transformed life. That is what we're going to look at in this series. What are the signs of life when it comes to living in this kingdom of God? We're going to talk about several of them. Robbie mentioned many of them. These were taught and modeled by Jesus himself. And I want to be clear right up front in this series that only God can transform a life. But what I want you to know is that we are not passive individuals. We can open ourselves up. We can participate. We can learn how to pursue this life. Today, as Robbie said, we're going to talk about one of the first signs of life when it comes to following our Jesus. We call it a growing life when you think about it there are few things in this world that we are more drawn to than growth we were made to grow we love to be around growth think about we plant gardens we set aside forest preserves we wait in the spring for our lawns to recover from the winter and then moan throughout the summer because we have to cut the grass every five days now (laughs) think about a parent whose kids learn their very first word Yesterday they could only cry or babble or drool. Today he or she has joined the ranks of talkers and parents are so excited. Think about leaders of a company that's growing and it's achieving its mission, it's it's on target, it's it's expanding. Think about the excitement of a 16-year-old kid who gets their driver's license. Yesterday they were a pedestrian, today they're a danger to everyone they know. (laughs) That is growth. As Christ followers, we all face the spiritual fork in the road. One way will lead to growth. It leads to the development of your God-given gifts, your potential. It means reaching new levels of maturity. It means a life of service to God and to his world. And there is no joy like that. The other path, of course, leads to stagnation. And apathy maybe even death and what I want you to know is that you can choose the path of growth we're going to talk about this for a moment I'm going to remind you again and we've talked about this a couple of times in the last probably five or six years but there are kind of what we would call three components of spiritual growth and transformation Dallas Willard uh, obviously one of my favorite writers and thinkers writes a lot about this, and he uses an acronym in the pursuit of growth. It is the word VIM, just the little three-letter word VIM. Now, that is an old word. You don't hear it a lot anymore, but it means to be full of life, VIM and vigor. And in this acronym, the V stands for vision, the I stands for intention, and the M stands for method. If you have the cards that we gave you as you came in this morning, I want you to take that out if you would. And then there should be a pen or pencil nearby. And just take a moment, if you would, you can take this with you today and write these three words into these spaces. Vision is the V, I is the intention, and M stands for method. Now when we talk about vision, what we're talking about is the Jesus dream. In other words, what does this life look like? And out of that vision, there will come intention or what we call the Jesus decision to make an intentional uh, decision that I will pursue the vision. And then finally, we will come to method, a rearranged life, a way. This is called the Jesus way, the Jesus method. Let's start with vision. I am not going to be able to adequately describe this by any means, but when Jesus invites you to follow him and to uh, do life with him, when he announces that the good news of the kingdom is here... When Jesus offers to be your forgiver and your guide and your friend, when he gives you that offer, friends, I guarantee you that is the greatest opportunity you will ever receive. There is nothing else, no job, no health, not a spouse, nothing Jesus says compares to it. He told stories about uh, the pearl of great price. He told about treasure that was hidden in a field. He says, when people finally understand this, he said, they'll want it more than anything else. Now, the psalmist kind of gives us a picture, and a lot of other writers in Scripture do as well. But the psalmist gives us a wonderful picture of what this vision looks like. This is what Psalms chapter 1 says. Blessed is a man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He or she is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Wow. The writer says that our lives, that we can grow if we become like this strong and mighty tree planted by streams of water. Now we understand this in our culture. We understand what a strong tree looks like. It's watered and fed well, so that in season it yields its fruit or it's green with life. But you know that every tree never starts that way. We took a look at the video right before the message. The reason we showed you that video was to show you that no tree starts as a tree. An oak tree does not start 50 feet tall with branches and deep roots. How does an oak tree start? With an acorn. And do you know what this little acorn represents? It represents potential. It represents possibilities. It is the beginning of a vision. This acorn has no intentions of staying little all its life. It has a vision of growing into this mighty tree. But here's the deal with us. We don't grow like acorns. (laughs) An acorn is buried in the ground and it will grow. We have to want that vision. We have to want it to the point that we then will do the second step and that is the eye of intention. We have to form an intention to pursue the Jesus vision. Now, here's where we kind of get stuck and I want to explain it today kind of with a visual example I want to explain it with kind of a rubber band you can think of it this way a guy named Greg Hawkins writes about this he says here's the deal with the rubber band he says that the end of the rubber band here represents vision that's this end okay he said out here is the vision he says this for any purpose is God's vision for my life and the question you have to ask is who does God want me to be According to the psalmist, God wants me to be this strong and mighty spiritual tree. In other words, he wants me to be this glorious creature that is generous and courageous and truthful and loving and humble, etc. And Jesus would talk about this. He says, good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. He would describe our life like a vine and a branch. He says, this is God's vision for your life out here. Now, this point back here, closer to me, represents reality. This is where I'm at right now, today. Now, let's have a little mass confession here. How many of you would say that there is at least a small gap between God's vision for your life and your current reality? Just a little bit, right? (laughs) It's precisely this gap between Reality on the one hand, and vision on the other hand, that produces this tension in our life. This is what pulls us in directions simultaneously. It is always going to be present, friends, in your life. And it cries out to be resolved. Now here's what i found. There are only two ways for this tension to resolve itself. One way is I can pull the vision back toward reality. I can lower my expectations. I can lower my aspirations. I can learn to settle for mediocrity. And if I do that, I guarantee you this is what will happen. Take it to the bank. I will compare myself to other people who are worse than I am. I will never look at myself honestly in the mirror. I will get distracted by stuff like money or alcohol or pleasure or busyness or something else. I will withdraw. I will not be connected to people and I will get used to it. There are only two ways to resolve this tension. One of them is to pull the vision back. And the other one is to have reality move closer to the vision. This is where you actually take steps toward the Jesus life. And a lot of it depends do you just keep the rubber band in front of you? Do you just come to see that this life out here is more compelling and more interesting and more life-changing than if you bring the vision back to reality? And here's the hardest part of this, I think, is that there is no church, there is no pastor, there is no spiritual leader, there is no book, there is no video, there is nothing that can hype it up And spin it or force it to happen you have to make this decision and here's what we need to realize this tension we experience it creates a certain amount of energy and that energy is what we call the Holy Spirit working in you what I want you to know today is that tension you feel is always always a good thing we may not feel like it's a good thing but it is now here's what I can do I can just let the rubber band be loose and I can be complacent, but it's interesting. The Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be comfortable with complacency. When you have complacency and drift, you can be assured the Holy Spirit is not leading you in that direction, friends. On the other hand, if you stretch a rubber band too tightly, what happens? It snaps. And spiritually speaking, that represents despair and discouragement and failure. And I'll tell you this, the next time the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear that you're hopeless, it will be the first time in the history of mankind. Because it has never happened and it never will. So when I feel this energy, when I feel this prompting, when I feel this tension, friends, that is a good thing because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. But you have to make a decision. You have to say, I want this. I want this more than I want anything else. And I'll get off track, and I'll fail, and I'll fall, but I'll keep coming back to this over and over again. This is what Dallas Willard writes. He says, My central claim is that we can become more like Jesus. Spiritual transformation or growth is possible by doing one thing. By following Jesus in the overall style of life, Jesus chose for himself. Now listen to these words. We'll put them on the screen. We can grow more like Christ. Spiritual transformation is authentically possible through faith and grace if I am willing to arrange my life around the activities Jesus himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his Father. So once you have the vision, it leads to intention. That's called the Jesus decision. But fortunately, it doesn't stop there. Because once we get to intention, the last step is method. This is what people have called for years the Jesus way. We rearrange our life to follow the same practices and methods that Jesus did. In other words, he would go into creation. He would be alone by himself with the Father. He would be silent sometimes and just listen. He would immerse his mind in the Holy Scriptures, in the Torah, and the thoughts of God. He would engage in fellowship with his closest friends. He would give of himself and serve others and live very simply. Now here's the thing. If Jesus felt like he needed to do that, then what are the chances that we, if we want to grow, need to do that? And part of what this means is that you have to believe that Jesus really knew what he was talking about. And here's the beauty of this thing called growth. It is impossible for churches to mass produce this. It is impossible to line people up or to send them to a certain class or to enroll them into a certain program. It never works, friends. And one of the reasons that doesn't work in churches and one of the reasons why pastors pull their hair out trying to figure out how to help people grow is everybody has different temptations. Everybody has different personalities. Everybody is wired up a little differently in this uh, life. But the purpose of these practices is not to earn brownie points. The purpose of them is to be constantly freed and empowered by God to live the kind of life Jesus lived. Now here's how I want to explain it to you. I don't know if it's going to be a great analogy or not. But I'm going to give you an example of what it means to see a vision for something and pursue it. Now this is purely from a physical standpoint. Okay, A couple weeks ago... I was watching the Masters Golf Tournament on TV. Arguably, the Masters is the most prestigious golf tournament in the world. It was a great tournament, came down to two guys at the very end. And this year, as I watched it, it reminded me of a story that was written by one of my favorite sports columnists named Rick Riley. He writes in this, one of his books about his favorite pastime, golf. So bear with me here, I want to read Rick's words. Rick says, I got sick and tired of reading the stories and that's why I did it. I know it was wrong and unethical and even unholy, but I just couldn't stand the stories anymore. A five-year-old in Belleville, Illinois, sank a hole in one. A 102-year-old woman became the oldest ever to hit one. A man in Bowling Green, Ohio, has now made hole-in-ones both right-handed and left-handed. Really? Because I've been playing since I was 13 years old, and I'm 51 now. And I'm not very bad, and I've never made one righty-lefty with a walker, a lollipop, or anything in between. But the story that made me snap was this one. 62-year-old Uni Haskell of St. Petersburg, Florida, made a hole-in-one a few months ago on the very first swing she ever took on a golf course. And that's when I lost it. I vowed to go to my local par-3 course and keep playing round after round like a rat after cheese until I finally made a hole-in-one. I didn't care if it took me an hour, a week, or a month. With my 22-year-old son and caddy Jake, by the way, he's made one barefooted, I arrived at the golf course at Highland Hills in Westminster, Colorado, and I set out on the dinky nine-hole north course, 673 yards total. My dad has made five of them, said Highland's director of golf, Todd Coover, who's made seven himself. One went off a tree. I kid you not. I said, how cool, chewing through my lip. The odds against making a hole-in-one, friends, are about 12,500 to one. I guessed I had played 50 rounds a year for 38 years at 7,600 par threes. At that pace, I'd have my hole-in-one when I turned 75, maybe. Unless I did the sensible thing and cheat. I figured at 10 shots a hole, nine holes a round, seven rounds a day, my hole-in-one would arrive in no more than eight days. I would probably be divorced, unemployed, and fused at the T3 and T5 vertebrae, but I'd finally be a golfer. My first shot missed. So did my second. In fact, my first 63 missed. My 64th, though, hit the pin and rolled away. My 77th lipped out of the cup. We'll be done by lunch, yelled Jake, standing by the hole and pounding his baseball glove ready to catch any shots that didn't have a chance. After three loops, I was o for 270. After five hours and 43 minutes and five loops, I was fried like a fritter and o for 450 with two pins, two lip outs, and one out-of-bounds shot. Jake was looking like he wanted to be adopted. Are we really doing this again tomorrow, he groaned. And I said, you bet your inheritance we are. (laughs) Day two, 20 more, 120 more, 200 more, nothing. I repeated holes, I skipped holes. I hit 20 shots per hole. I tried not caring, caring too much, singing one-handed, happy Gilmore, all useless. The golf gods had spited me. As my back spasmed and hands gnarled and Jake's eyes became shark dead, I asked myself, what if I never do it? Am I less of a person? Besides, Ben Hogan never had one, right? Actually, wrong. He had two. And then, when all seemed hopeless, on my 694th shot of the quest, on the tiny 52-yard second, I hit a gorgeous little punch sand wedge that went straight as a Jonas brother, (laughs) landed exactly 11 feet from the pin, and rolled directly and obediently into the cup like a happy little gopher off the bed. Holy hole-out. Jake threw his glove about 50 feet high. I threw my sand wedge who knows where. We ran at each other like we were in a Lifetime, TV, a Ch- Lifetime Channel TV ad. <laughs> I had done it. I achieved the unachievable. Climbed the world's smallest mountain. It had taken six hours and 23 minutes, over 500 ball mark fixes and 12 Advil. But it was done. Take that, you Haskell. We headed to the pro shot to report the news. I hate to tell you this, Todd Cooper whispered, but it's not technically recognized by the PGA Tour. Sorry. And I thought, Todd, I was hitting 20 balls per hole on a golf course the size of a throw rug. What made you think I gave a moles pimple about a fish show? (laughs) The reaction from my friends was less than congratulatory. A 50-yard hole-in-one emailed my pal the Vanilla Gorilla. That's like a 150-foot putt. Do I care? No. Am I going to tell people how I came to mind? No. And what will I say when I read the story about a legless 104-year-old blind nun who got her first hole-in-one Tuesday while <laughs> alive, wombat chewed on her clavicle? <laughs> what in the world took you so long, lady? <laughs> See, here's the deal. Rick Riley had a compelling vision. And the question is, do you really think he wanted it? <laughs> I'd say so. He wanted it more than he wanted anything else, and he arranged his life around trying to reach his vision. That's what leads to a growing life. Listen, I'm not saying that being part of a faith community, gathering for worship, learning, hearing messages, I'm not saying that's not critical, but over time it turns out that the wisest investment of our time is what is called personal spiritual practices they actually become the key predictor of continued growth in loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What I'm talking about here is learning how to abide with Jesus outside of church, learning from one moment to the next, to the next, to the next, how to stay connected to him. When you wake up, when you eat, when you get in a fight with your spouse, when you're asleep, how do you abide with Jesus from one moment to the next? And the biggest temptation of the Christian life Is anything that gets in the way of that? Let me make this specific and we'll kind of turn toward home here. This morning, where is there a sense of discontent in your spiritual life? In other words, where is the spirit saying, here's the tension, here's where I'm calling you to grow? Let's walk through these. One of them maybe has has to do with how I know God, how I think about God, what I think about God, and how I experience God in my life. If you are struggling with your concept of God, connecting to God, understanding God, figuring out all that kind of stuff, one of the best ways to understand that and to grow in that is to reflect on His Word. I'm not talking about reading the Bible. I'm talking about reflecting on the Bible, reflecting on the words of Scripture and my life in light of what the Scriptures are saying. Does that make sense? It turns out That the number one personal spiritual practice that predicts growth across all stages of spiritual life is this one. Internally speaking, it is the number one indicator because your concept of God is the single most important concept in your head. I'm going to say that again. Your concept and idea of God, what He's like and what He's not like, is the single most important concept in your head. And the reality is, is that my attitudes toward life, toward people, toward confidence, humility, all those things, they flow from how do I think about God? And what's crazy is we talk about a lot of things, but we don't talk about this one very much. It's very interesting. When I was growing up, Robbie and I, we both grew up in a Pentecostal church, not the same one, but it was a good one that I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and what I found there was for some reason, no matter which church I've ever been involved in, there was always a number one complaint from people. Number one. The number one complaint that I heard, more than any others, is people would say, you know, we're just not being fed enough. I'm just not being fed and what was crazy about this is that the people who said this had been around church for like 15, 25, 30, 150 years. And they would say, I'm just not being fed. I need to go to another church because I'm not being fed. And listen, I understand. When you're young and you don't know much about Scripture and you don't know much about Jesus' life and all, I understand you need somebody who understands the Bible and help you grow in the Bible and explain it. I got, I got that. But at a certain point, God expects you to take off your bib and climb down out of a high chair and pick up a fork and cut your own food up and feed yourself. So if you don't have a plan for reflecting and immersing your mind in the scriptures, and again, I'm not just talking about reading through the Bible so that you say, well, I did all 365 days. I'm talking about getting it down here so that it changes your mind about God and the world around you. That's one of them, okay? That's one practice. Here's another one. God often calls us to grow in servanthood and serving. Now, this is interesting. The most important outside activity in predicting spiritual growth is serving others. Now, remember what I said. The most internal practice, the most important one, the one that is a predictor of spiritual growth internally is immersing your mind in the words of God but the most important one outwardly externally is actually when we serve other people particularly people who are under resourced particularly people who serve and live in a world kind of different than our own world and what's interesting here is that the further you go in spiritual life the more you walk with Jesus the more important servanthood it becomes that's why I'm so proud of so many of you who come out to Second Saturdays or are involved in mission efforts, support missionaries, and go and visit people who are in a different world than your world. Volunteering in the community, whether it's um, Christians you're serving or anyone, just volunteering and serving in our community. Jesus says that will help you grow. Another area where Jesus wants us to grow is the area of giving. We live in a world of materialism and acquisition and desire for security and affluence. And the busyness of life all usually flows out of that stuff. And what Jesus does when we give of ourselves financially is that he says, you know, you're trusting me. You're, You're trusting that I will provide and I will replace and I will watch over you and I will give you what you need. Some of you have found that out during this campaign just to pave a parking lot. You've stretched yourself and you've seen God replace what you've given and sometimes in some places even add more or He's blessed you in some other way. Another core practice is community. Being in authentic relationships. We announced this morning another life group for young people, for young adults and students. Being connected into a smaller community within the bigger community. And people say, well, why do you do that? Why, why is it such a big deal? The reason is because that was the model Jesus had. Jesus took a small group of people and he did life with them and he loved them and he was accountable with them and to them and they to him. One of the other things, one last thing. People have said to me many times, one of the key catalysts for growth has been times of pain and difficulty in their life. Oftentimes, it is those times when we get kind of catalyzed to take a step. And I want to say this to you this morning sincerely. If you need pain and difficulty, we can provide that. Just call our church office. We can give you tough stuff to do. Here's the deal. By the way, life will do that for you. You don't need to call us. Once you have the vision... And once you have firm intention, it is so important that you then consider what's the method that I must engage in to experience the Jesus way of life. Let me say this in closing. The number one way you will grow, friends, is you own your own spiritual life. No one, and I mean no one, is going to hit the hole in one for you. Only God can bring about transformation. Only God can bring about growth. But you can put yourself in a place. You can do certain things that will set you up to grow. We want to do that as a part of his kingdom. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I'd like you to hold that card that we gave you. And I'd like you to look at it one more time. That little acorn has such potential. And that little VIM diagram or VIM acronym is calling today for you to select. And maybe this morning, and I'm just going to kind of walk through this in a moment as we close in prayer. For some of you this morning, it might be the vision that you've lost. You've just kind of lost the picture of how awesome the kingdom life can be. For some of you, you just haven't made a decision. You haven't made an intentional Christ decision to pursue that life above other stuff. And for some of you, it's the method. It's looking at Jesus and say, what did Jesus do? That's what I need to do. So today we want to help you take at least one step. So I'd like you to take about five seconds. I'd like you to look at it. and I'd like you to say one more time. Maybe today you need some vision. Maybe today you need a decision. Maybe today you need to say, you know what, I need to rearrange my life around these methods. Let's pray. Jesus, today for those who have kind of lost uh, their spiritual eyesight to see the vision of how awesome and how wonderful and how blessed the kingdom life could be, I pray today that you would kind of stir them and wake us and Uh, Open our eyes to a bigger vision of our life. Help us to remember that we can either hold the rubber band out and look at the vision or we can pull it back and just decide to live in current reality. And if we do, we miss this wonderful thing called the Jesus way of life. For others today, uh, maybe it's time to make a decision. Maybe it's time to sense the Holy Spirit's tension in their life. That energy that says you can either pull back and just be apathetic, or you can pull further, and you can move forward. I pray that we would uh, receive that that unction, that 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 passion, that help to see that if we make that step, Jesus will show up. Finally, there's some of us who have gotten so busy in life and so. Um, just maybe covered by pain and difficulty and, and circumstances of life that we, we've just forgotten to rearrange our life around the way of Jesus. So, today, bring to our minds and to our hearts the methods, the practices that our Savior practiced. Whether it's being out in nature and close to the Father, whether it's being immersing our minds in Scripture whether it's serving under resource folks or maybe in a community life group where we're doing life together with other folks, help us today to understand that those practices, engaging in them as the Holy Spirit works in our life is what helps us grow and mature into Christ-likeness. And now as we continue on in this series, help us to understand and to implement and practice the science of life. In Christ's name, amen.